0: Welcome to the LBCF podcast. Our vision is to learn to live and love like Jesus, where we live, work, and play. To find out more about our community, you can visit us at lbcf.org. We hope you are encouraged and challenged by this teaching from our community. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, We have a special treat for you today um, for uh, scripture reading. We actually have a, a video, and I know there's uh, quite a few of our community still um, unable to you know, join us in person, and so uh, one of the families is going to do a little video um, for us. Greetings LBCF, it's
1: the Lassigard family. You may know us as, hey, I think they used to jam out on the worship team. Or aren't they the ones that brought their own dishes to Taco Tuesday? <laughs> or more likely, oh, that's Vera and Seth's parents. Regardless, we look forward to joining you in person in the near future. But in the meantime, this week's Advent reading comes from John 1, verses 1 through 5.
0: In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made, without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life, was the light of all mankind the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it carrying her um, message to the children i I whispered over to my my wife afterwards and i said why do i need to come up anymore (laughs) i feel like the message is is done i mean that's that's really all and if we could just um meditate on that i think that would be phenomenal um, but I am here to um, introduce, um, you know, for um, the lead, lead team as we enter into the Advent season. Uh, we'll be focusing uh, primarily on the Gospel of John, Chapter 1. And it's a really packed, um, it's a really packed um, um, set of verses. It's one of those verses where I feel like um, you could pour water in it and it'll just explode, right? It'll, it's just a lot. You know, James Bustamante actually um, shared um, one of his research on this first chapter with us, and he uh, shared it with the lead team, and in this article he gave us, he said every major topic in John's gospel and the whole gospel can actually be found in the first 18 verses. And it it really is. I mean, it's it's all there. And, you know, even in the next few weeks, we won't be able to unpack it fully, but um, we'll try. But as I was um, looking at um, the passages, it brought me back to a TV series that I used to watch uh, pretty regularly. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's called Undercover Boss. Um, And it's always been a fascinating show because each, uh, if you've never seen it before, each episode is about a person in upper management, you know, oftentimes the owner or president of a company, that um, goes undercover as an uh, entry-level employee you know, to the business that he owns or she owns or, or, you know, is in charge of. You know, to discover all the faults and things that, you know, are, are seen by, you know, by entry-level and regular employees in, in the business. And of course, as an undercover employee, you know, um, this person, you know, is all, um, all the makeup is done so that, you, that person is unrecognizable. And they go in as a new employee trainee, and this person is being uh, trained on all the little different nuances of the business. And oftentimes, these presidents or CEOs, you know, you could tell they've never really done manual labor or hard labor, and so they're like fumbling around. They're not very good at, you know, the the job they're being um, introduced to, and it's kind of, you know, there's quite a few funny scenes in it. And this undercover um, boss is able to have interactions with all these different employees. You know, they're in the break room talking about life. They're talking about what they wish, you know, was better in the, the workplace. And then later in each episode, later part of the episode, there's this big reveal, right? That a trainer is, is brought to headquarters into the, the office of the person that was undercover. And that person introduces themselves as the one that they had been training. And it's quite remarkable because, you know, the, the, the employee now is like, you know, the positions have shifted. It, 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 there's this power dynamic happens and there's this kind of like shock. And like you could tell in the back of their minds they're wondering, did I say something wrong? Did I do something wrong? And I'm going to get fired, whatever it might be. But usually what happens is that, you know, they're commended for their work. And, and they're, they're rewarded and all of that. And so as I was watching, you know, as I was thinking about the undercover boss, I was thinking of, um, of that this, this is kind of what Advent is, that God comes in disguise, that God comes into the world. And, you know, um, in John chapter 1, uh, verse 1, it says, "...in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning." Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And so from the very beginning of John's gospel, we find that this, this logos, this, this God you know, that had been from the very beginning, is God himself and was brought into the world. And so this word, though, when it says in the beginning was the word, the word, the Greek word there is is logos. And and it's a Greek word, and it's a really hard word to translate because, you know, when we think of the word, word, we often think of some basic, like, noun or verb or adjective or or something. And, And oftentimes I know even a lot of Christians think that the word in this, you know, in this first verse means Bible, and so some people might even say in the beginning was the Bible and the Bible was with God. And that's not at all what John is trying to say in this text. Um, Logos was actually a concept that was um, borrowed from um, Greek philosophy. It was outside of, of Jewish thought. It was, it was so, you know, when you think about Greek thought and, and, and Hebrew thought, they are so vastly different. It's almost if, you know, you brought your kid to a pediatrician. And as the pediatrician is diagnosing your child and they're, you know, they're suggesting some possible, you know, um, things to do with your child, they all of a sudden pull out acupuncture needles. And you're like, whoa, what's going on here? You know, I didn't expect that. It, it's that, that, like, vastly different concept of God, of reality, of theology. And that's what John is doing here. John is introducing a word that is so outside of Jewish thought that, you know, for, for the original like um, for the original um, readers of John's gospel, um, Hebrew readers, you know, this was this was very perplexing. But but what the interesting about John's gospel is that even though it begins with this this gr- very Greek word logos. Everything else that is in the Gospel of John is very popular in Hebrew poetry. The ideas of, of, of light and, and creation and all of that is, is something that was familiar, but it wasn't, those concepts weren't, weren't thought of in connection with the word logos, but actually it was thought of in connection with the word wisdom. And, and if John had used the word wisdom, you know, in the beginning, was wisdom and wisdom was with God, it would have made a lot of sense to Jewish minds because, you know, throughout Proverbs especially, wisdom is personified. And and you find in Proverbs 8.22, it says, The Lord brought wisdom forth as its first works. I was formed long ago at the very beginning when the world came to be. And so wisdom is is used throughout Proverbs as, as being part of creation as even, even being part of light and, and all that is. And so there was like this commonality in, in, in the Jewish thought of wisdom with the Greek thought of logos. Because for the Jewish mind, wisdom was the very DNA of God. And so, and so the question I had in like reading through um, you know, John's gospel is, why didn't John just use the word wisdom or Sophia. In, in this text, it would have just made more sense to, you know, the Jewish mind. But, but I think what John is trying to do is, is he, he sees something in Greek thought, in Greek theology, in Greek philosophy. And realizes there, there are certain things that they talk about in terms of logos that actually describes who God is. That is outside of the of Jewish way of thinking. And so, to kind of like you know um, ruffle the feathers a little, or to to kind of make them think more deeply, and by by using the word logos, John is trying to say this word wisdom that we know so well and we love. That in itself can't contain who God is. That we have to go outside our, our our traditions, our regular way of thinking. That we have to think outside of the box. And I think that's what makes this so powerful is that from the very beginning of John's gospel, he is trying to make our imagination of who God is so much greater that he's even willing to look outside of what was considered safe, what was considered pure, and what was considered right. And he went into something that a lot of people thought was inferior. And he was able to say there is value and, and so John in the sense is this ultimate unifier of like two religious and philosophical and theological systems that that really didn't have much in common but it was a way of essentially saying that there's there's validity outside of what we know. And if we can just you know bring all those things in, it'll help us but but I, I imagine that there was this like tension right that was welling up and in the initial readers, it's almost like if I gave a message on peace, you know, in, in a church, and instead of using the word peace, I chose to use the word nirvana. And for a lot of people, they would be like, whoa, where are we going here? <laughs> this, is, this doesn't feel safe. This feels too Eastern for me. That's, that's kind of the idea of logos. It, it's scary. It's perplexing. And yet, at the same time, there's something profound and beautiful and, and just just enlarging about who God is. And, and that's what John is, is, I think, trying to say. And so, as we... I'm flipping over the wrong pages. <laughs> as we think about, you know, um, this, this idea of God, I think, um, you know, John is, is saying, and, and now this, this logos has... has Tabernacle am- amongst us and has become flesh, and and God Himself has become hidden in human form. That hidden so much that so many people aren't able to understand and see who who this who this God is. That that it, it, it's the undercover God. It's it's God who, you know, it, it's it's. Basically, God can't be seen by, by so many people. The John tells us in verse 9, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and through the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. And, and I think about that passage and I realize that, you know, that's kind of a scary thought that God would be able to come into this world and for people to not recognize. And it it caused me to think about how people's inability to recognize Christ is often the case with us. It's our inability to recognize beauty and and the divine. And we do that so often. You know, the Washington Post um, did a sociological experiment a few years back. And they asked this violinist, the, probably one of the most famous violinists of our time, Joshua Bell, to conduct a concert in a train station, in a subway station. And they chose to do it in a very rush hour time in Washington, D.C.'s L'Enfant Plaza station, if you've ever been there. It's like the station right next to the Smithsonian and all these like national museums. It's this center point of so much like art, right, in in the US. And so they asked Joshua Bell to basically go undercover um, and not tell everyone and advertise that this was the violinist, you know, Joshua Bell performing. And, And so the question was simply this, in a banal setting, at an inconvenient time, would beauty transcend? Would people be able to recognize this, this premier violinist playing in the most banal of settings. In, in a time where everyone was trying to rush by, would people actually be able to notice and hear and stop what they were doing, even willing to miss their train because of this transcendent sense of, of beauty? And, and so that was the test. And so, for about forty-five minutes, you know, um, Joshua Bell brought his three-point-five-million-dollar violin uh, to the train station. He played um, for thousands of commuters who, who passed by him. And what was interesting is that only seven people stopped to listen. And in the whole amount of time he played, he was able to only generate $30. Here was a guy that was used to playing, you know, at concerts for $1,000 a minute. And when he was interviewed, he he said, um, you know, just kind of like smiling, he said, um, it was a strange feeling that people were actually ignoring me. But what was interesting also about this, um, this experiment was that uh, when the camera, cameras were, were, you know, trying to look at the, uh, the people's reaction, it was the children that were pretty much drawn to um, Joshua Bell. The children were the ones that were like wanting to pause, but each time it was the parent who was trying to pull them away and rush them so that they could make the next train. And I thought that was just like an, an amazing, as amazing like experiment that, that in the rush of things, as Barbara shared in the beginning, you know, when we were meeting outside for prayer, that she felt rushed and that she needed to pause and, and, and just kind of like, <coughs> just kind of, um, you know, allow God's peace to come. Because I think when, when we don't pause, we're not able to see the beauty and the divine that, that is really all around us. There was a, a story that Eugene Peterson told of one of his students, um, and he said that uh, one of his students lived a long way from the school, and the students shared to him that um, for the past three days, he had been telling his wife that he was going to um, immerse himself in God's creation. And then on the next day, he said the same thing to his wife, you know, as he was um, leaving their apartment. You know, I'm going to go outside and immerse myself in God's creation. And then on the third day, he said the same thing, and by the third day, his wife kind of said, you know what, um, maybe you should go to class today instead of, like, immersing yourself in God's creation. And this, this student said, yeah, oh, no, wait, I, be, I have been going to class every day, and And she responded by saying, What's this business then of you immersing yourself in God's creation? And his response was, Well, I spend about 40 minutes a day on the bus each morning and afternoon. Can you think of a more setting? Can you think of a setting more thick with creation than that? All these people created in the image of God here on the bus. And then honestly, when I thought about that, I was like in the middle of this um this food festival. And and I usually don't like crowds, right? Um I I'm like whenever like it's Christmas season, it's time to shop, I'm like, oh I'll get get away from there. But I remember thinking about all the, this, these people feeling like they were like kind of pressing my 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 like private space and, and just like moving towards me and just feeling like this anxiety beginning to build and getting annoyed. But as I reflected on what the seminary student said, I remember just shifting my mind and realizing that in the same way I I might go to some tropical island and feel just the beauty of all creation around me, that what Jesus does when he comes to this earth if it's just that, that Jesus is able to, to see the crowds, to see all of, all the people, to see everyone who is pressing in on them and not, reco- not see them as, as people that is infringing on the space, but rather as, as the beloved of God, as John's gospel says, as children as children of God. And so I suppose there are two twists in John's first chapter here. The first twist is that the divine became man and and was hidden, and and the world couldn't see. But the second twist is that those who receive him and believe become children of God. That, That the twist is Is that people reflect the divine image and that somehow in our in our busyness and trying to get from one place to the next and trying to decorate the house or cook the meals, we brush off the things that is most important. And our children, our children, better than anyone knows, like when they see another child, they stop and play. They're not trying to get to the next thing. They want to stop. They want to play. They even want to roll around in the carpet, you know, and enjoy, you know, wherever space they are because they're just like, there's just so much freedom in that. There is so much freedom in that. And I know for many of us, um, the season is very difficult. And I've shared to this church before that um, I went through a very difficult season about seven years ago when, um, you know, we went through a church split um, in June of 2014, Um, how many of our best friends, um, you know, left the church. And it was tough. Um, You know, this group that we had um, done so much life with, we recognized that there was like deep theological differences and, and things like that and, and hurtful words shared. And so we, we said, you know what, let's um, take a little break and let's, let's, let's resume again for Thanksgiving. And so as Thanksgiving was approaching, I remember sending out an email. I was saying, hey, just wanted to circle back and, and say um, that I would, we would love my wife and I would love to invite you guys over for um, Thanksgiving dinner. And as I was hoping for um, this reunion, one by one, each person said they were busy. And that was kind of like, well, I know it's a busy time, and so I totally get it. Um, the holidays, um, it's, it's understandable. It's understandable. And so after Thanksgiving, I decided to send another email. But instead of picking a a specific date, I kind of left it open-ended. And I said, hey, you know what, Um, I I hope you guys had a great Thanksgiving. Um, We'd love to have you over for Christmas, and hopefully we can find a time to get together. And this time, um, they responded again. But instead of um, saying no to a specific date, They said they were too busy. One by one, the response was almost exactly the same. And I remember just each letter feeling like it was a a punch to my stomach. Just um, like, oh my goodness, this is their way of saying that our relationship is no more. And so this, this Advent season, you know, was was really, really hard. Because it represented this this loss, this this grieving. And, and yet I knew that my heart towards my friends was still the same. It was filled with with love and I had this like hope. Um that maybe one day we'll be able to meet, but I knew that at this point it was—it it was meaningless for me to keep writing endless emails to them, and so I decided to write one more. I basically said in this email, "Hey, you know what? I—I um, I know you guys have a lot going on, and I—there's probably some hard feelings and." And, and emotions, like, rising when, I, when I'm, like, trying to bring us together. And I want you to know that I won't keep um, emailing you guys. I want to respect your, your boundaries that you're setting at this time. But know that this invitation to each of you is open. That for no matter how long, the invitation is open for you whenever you're ready to respond to this email, to come to our house for dinner, for fellowship, for reconciliation. And one of the things I've learned is that we can't always fix the problems outside of us. We can't always wave a magic wand and feel like things are going to get better if we follow 1, 2, 3, and 4. But what I see in the Advent story is God himself coming into this world because God doesn't give up on anyone. And in Christ's coming into this world, Christ's hope is that all things will be restored to Christ. All things will become new. And that if we would only see the divine image in each person, that we would see that God doesn't give up on anybody. And somehow my hope is that even though I know that's a, that's a future thing, that one day all things will be reconciled in heaven, Scripture tells me to live on earth as if it were heaven. And that even though I can't fix these relationships... I can still posture my heart towards hope, towards love, and leave space for grief. And maybe that's where we're at. As hard as this Advent season is, I mean, our problems become magnified in the holidays, and it's really, really hard. Scripture tells us the divine has come. That God is here. That God is present. And that if we will, if we will allow God to open up our eyes and to pause long enough to see the divine in every person, then we would know that God looks around all of creation, all the people, and doesn't define them by their mistakes or even what they have done unto us. I look at the children that were like sitting in front, and I was able like from my seat just to see their faces, like when Miss Mary was saying the words and how their eyes just opened up, and I was just like, oh my goodness, how adorable each child is. And I was just like, oh, the innocence, the the beauty of each child. But then I looked across the behind the children and I looked at all of you and I realized that God isn't just looking at the children he's looking at each of you the same way that God sees an innocent baby because you aren't defined by the mistakes of this year you aren't defined by your theology John, in this introduction, merely says that each of you are children of God. And because of that, there is beauty. Embrace yourself and pause long enough to see the beauty of other people around you. And with that, let hope build in ourselves. Let hope build in that one day all things will become new. All things will be restored. And so right now, you know, one of the things we want to do is in this Advent season is, is, is the way we enter into that, that pause. From all the hustle and bustle of like the season is, is to like pause and to pray and to listen. And so I'm going to call up Abby, who I mean Abby, my wife, Gabby, who is our prayer ministry leader. Um, and each week during Advent season, she will share words about prayer to help us usher into this, this Advent season. Good
1: morning, guys. Um, I'm asked People ask me, how do you pray? And I'm not an authority on that. <laughs> um, one of the most important things about prayer is listening. So I'm going to talk to you about listening today. Um, and I'm going to read to you some things out of um, Luke 1. So this is um, Zechariah. There's two people who listened in this chapter, Zachariah and Mary. And there was two ways of listening. And so okay, here we go. So this is uh, Luke one, verse twenty-seven. Gabriel was sent from God's presence to an uh, no, no 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 sorry. It's been a hectic mom morning. Okay, I have a I have a niece who's in, who has been in surgery emergency surgery and she just came out of. Having her appendix out, and they took part of her colon. So, that's my phone. My family has been texting, so it's been a little bit crazy. Anyways, okay. So, all at once, an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing just to the right of the altar of incense. Zechariah was in the holy of holies. Right then, he was the priest. Zechariah was startled and overwhelmed with fear, but the angel reassured him, saying. Don't be afraid, Zechariah. God is showing grace to you. For I have come to tell you that your prayer for a child has been answered. Your wife Elizabeth will bear a son, and you are to name him John, and his birth will bring you much joy and gladness. And he went on to tell him how amazing John was going to be. He went on to tell him who John was going to be. So this is Zachariah's response after listening. He said, how do you expect me to believe this? I'm an old man, and my wife is too old to give me a child. What sign can you give me to prove this will happen? Then the angel said, I am Gabriel. I stand beside God himself. He has sent me to announce to you this good news. But now, since you did not believe my words, you will be stricken, silent, and unable to speak until the day my words have been fulfilled at their appointed time and the child is born to you. That is your sign. So we look at Zechariah, and Zechariah had prayed for decades for a child. So much disappointment for him and Elizabeth. He watched his wife just be so disappointed month after month after month. And he felt forgotten. And he listened with disappointment. And he listened with despair. Cynicism had crept into him. And so when he heard this, he heard it with much cynicism. So later in the same chapter, Gabriel was sent from God's presence to an unmarried girl named Mary, living in Nazareth, a village in Galilee. She was engaged to a man named Joseph, a true descendant of King David. Gabriel appeared to her and said, Grace to you, young woman, for the Lord is with you, and so you are anointed with great favor. Mary was very deeply troubled over the words of the angel and bewildered over what this may mean for her. But the angel reassured her, saying, do not yield to your fear, Mary. Do not yield to your fear. For the Lord has found delight in you and has chosen to surprise you with a wonderful gift. And he told her that she'd be pregnant with Jesus. And he told her who Jesus would be. And she said, but how could this be? I'm still a, mir- a virgin. She's had questions just like Zachariah had, had questions. But the attitude was different. Gabriel answered, the spirit of the, holy- of the holiness will fall upon you, and almighty God will spread his shadow of power over you in a cloud of glory. And this is why the child to you will be holy, and he will be called the son of God. What's more, he told her about Elizabeth conceiving. So Mary responded saying, this is amazing. I will be a mother for the Lord. As his servant, I accept whatever he has for me. May everything you have told me come to pass. And the angel left her. So we had two listeners one who listened out of their disappointment and out of their experience and circumstances, and one who listened out of not knowing but accepting because she had her faith in the Lord and in his character, and she could listen. So when we pray, we listen. We need to be careful how we're listening. Are we listening to him with cynicism? Are we listening to him with doubt? Are we listening to him with fear? The angel told her not to fear, and she did not fear, and she accepted. Um, So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to listen to God because this is the beginning of prayer. We listen to God, and we say, what do you have? So we're going to ask God two questions this morning. Those cards that you have, you're going to write down what he says to you, you're going to ask him two questions. Who do you say that I am? Because he did tell um, Zachariah and Mary who, they, who their babies were going to be. And he's gonna, And the other question we're going to ask him is, what do you love about me? So who do you say I am and what do you love about me? And he loves you and he wants to speak to you. And even for those online, you ask God the same question. Who do you say I am, and what do you love about me? Amen.
0: Um, Your paper, um, you know, take it with you and keep reflecting on it. Because I think... um, This holiday season and this Advent season, it's so important for us to listen and to pay attention um, to what God says about us and how he loves us. But at this time as we um, enter into communion, um, I was thinking about my invitation to my friends um, to come to Thanksgiving dinner or to come to Christmas dinner. Communion is actually about God inviting us to a significant dinner, um, a significant meal. In the same way, in my Thanksgiving family, I was always looking around to see who showed up. Um, It wasn't about the meal itself, but it was about the people that you were with. And of course, the person that we gather around today is Christ. Christ but also what's important is that we gather around this meal together we don't come to the table as solo individuals we come together as the family of God because each of us are invited and so as you come before the table and participate in the elements um, Pay attention to who's in the room. Pay attention that we are having supper together. That we are having communion together. Why? Because we are family. And allow this table to represent who we are. Christ's beloved and Christ's call for the unity of the church. That even though we might be packaged in a way that um, doesn't feel lovable, um, the divine is in you. You have intrinsic worth. You are the beloved. And so, Father, prepare our hearts now as we partake of this table. May God, you invite us into your presence. May we be reminded who we are, how you love us, and how, God, we are part of this great family. In Christ's name, amen.